A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about European referendums and the upcoming budget. Then Tom Gatti, our culture editor, will be talking to Erica Wagner about the story she's written for this week's magazine about a neurosurgeon and what happens when neurosurgery goes wrong. And Caroline Crampton and Ian Stebbin will be talking about airline safety and why so few planes crash. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. And first of all, we're going to talk about Europe. Hooray! Very small cheer. Um, Ed Miliband has finally kind of come out with his position on the EU referendum. Um, and George, I'm going to leave it to you to explain exactly what it is. Well, the new announcement is that Labour will hold an in-out referendum if there are any new powers transferred uh, from Britain to Brussels. But crucially, Ed Miliband has made it clear that he thinks this is this condition is very unlikely to be met in the next parliament. So what's really significant is not what he's ruling in, but what he's ruling out, which is an automatic in-out referendum, um, which David Cameron has promised and which Ed Miliband, I think, for very good reasons, is desperate to avoid. But what happened was we got head, half a load of headlines in the mirror saying he he's going to give you a referendum, and then the other half, like the FT, going, he's not going to give you a referendum. Yeah, they really didn't brief. I mean, that, that was... And I was speaking to people in Westminster yesterday about this. That wasn't an accident. Well, it was an accident because they obviously would have liked everyone to have the same story. But the briefing, that was a result of deliberate briefing that went a bit wrong. And they mishandled the briefing of it. Uh, so, as you say, they, they somehow looked as if they were saying, you've got a referendum, but actually you haven't really got a referendum. But you've got a referendum, but maybe you haven't got a referendum. Um, and that's never a good look. But I think the big picture on all of this is that ultimately they don't care. Um, because not enough people care. I mean, as you said at the at the top, uh, people Europe. There are some people who who wake up in the morning thinking about nothing else and go to bed at night having not thought about anything else all day. Um, and their abiding motive in life is to get Britain out of the European Union. They're almost certainly not voting Labour anyway. Um, and then everyone else doesn't really think about it that much. And if Labour has got a position that sounds plausible and they can stick to it and they can essentially prod the Tories into getting very frothy about it and going on and on about it in a slightly quixotic, uh, obsessive, neurotic way, that might actually be quite a good outcome for Labour. Well, we find ourselves in, in agreement with Lord Ashcroft on this, don't we? Because his line all along has been that it's been a sideshow in those marginal seats and that by talking so much about Europe, the Tories are missing a chance to talk about other things that are much more likely to 
to influence voting intentions. That's right, isn't it, George? Absolutely. I mean, the it was, of course, David Cameron himself who warned his party not to bang on about Europe, and uh, they've completely ignored his, his advice since then. And, I mean, I think Ed Miliband recognised that Labour's had quite a lot of success since his conference speech in shifting the debate towards living standards, towards wages, towards jobs, um, which areas where Labour continues to have a lead over the Conservatives and and if he had promised, if he had matched Cameron's promise of a referendum, that that would have meant he was fighting back on back on Tory territory. Um, and in an and you've area made a the... very good point that you know we were all told last year that David Cameron's referendum pledge that was it that would be the final thing that won his Tory back you know the Tory back benches back round to him it will see off the UKIP threat and everything would be sunlight uplands and it's done no such thing. No, um, George was absolutely right about that and and it's worth remembering in this context that. The policy that Ed Miliband had just announced yesterday is a marginally tougher, as it were, on Brussels and marginally moves in the direction of more referendum relative to the position that David Cameron brought into government in 2010. So what's actually what you've actually got is a situation where, you know, Cameron would quite happily have the policy that Ed Miliband has got. That was the, the sort of furthest position he was prepared to go to only three years ago. It's just that he's been bounced and bounced and bounced into a more extreme position um, by his party. And ultimately, Ed Miliband and David Cameron both know equally that the last thing they would want to do with, a, with the next parliament, if they were prime minister, is squander all of their political capital, desperately fighting a rearguard action to try and keep Britain in the European Union, because that's the outcome they would want. But only one of them has been mug enough to actually sign up to do that in advance, and that's David Cameron. And, and sort of the, the Tories think that Ed Miliband's made a terrible mistake here, and I suspect they might, as the electioneers come to think, oh... Actually, maybe we've made life really made life really difficult for ourselves here, and Ed hasn't. Well, I think you've both written about this about this being a sign of of Miliband's increased confidence that he thinks he's going to he's got a decent chance. Therefore, he's going to be really careful about what he promises. Um, the parallel thing that's been happening this week is the Lib Dems uh, becoming explicitly pro-European. They've decided that that's a, an argument that's not being made. Um, George, how important a tactical manoeuvre is that for them? Well, it is because one of the complaints that people make about the Lib Dems is we don't know what they stand for anymore um, because their identity has been diluted by the coalition. I mean, for a long time, they positioned themselves to the left of New Labour. There was plenty of space to the left of New Labour. But Ed Miliband's repositioning of Labour means that a lot of those differences have uh, have faded away. But by presenting themselves as the only unambiguously, unashamedly pro-European party, they think that they can persuade some of their target voters, the 25% of the electorate who would consider voting for them, to, to come home. Uh, Europhilia in general is not a popular policy, but it is a popular policy among the voters the Lib Dems are aiming And it's for. also a whole lot more popular than the Lib Dems. I mean, this is the yeah. thing you have to, to remember, you know, that, that ultimately Nick Clegg is in the business of, of looking for... He needs, he needs to recruit a whole new set of people who vote for him, because as George said, there are some who are simply never going back. Um, and so you know, while the UKIP, there's been, as you know, I've written in, in my column this week, there are a lot of people who in Westminster who are terribly excited about UKIP and think it represents some fascinating sociological and political phenomenon and are actually, although they're not necessarily deferential to UKIP as an organisation, they're tremendously deferential to UKIP voters and treat the sort of jaundiced UKIP worldview as somehow tremendously authentic and and. and more real granular than and other political opinions. There's a lot of people out there who just hate UKIP and think they're ridiculous and think the sort of pub ball nationalism isn't the answer. And that is a potential pool of voters for 
for Clegg to to fish in. Um, but we shouldn't overstate it. I mean, the, yeah, they the Lib Dem Lib Dem candidates are becoming last to you know Elvis impersonators last past and, Elvis, and, yes. and, and, and penguins. So yeah, they've. It's, it, I think it's as a strategy, it's the best one they've got. It's not a delusional thing to try and do. But that doesn't mean it's going to work. But equally well, I mean, I've started hearing kind of things about Nigel Farage becoming much more grumpy with journalists. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's really the, the shine is a bit coming off him, and and if, uh, he's feeling that it's coming off the press because he's not just getting kind of simple adoration. Anymore. No, and uh, the, the, it, it's not improbable to think that this is we've had kind of peak UKIP, um, but at the same time, they don't need to fall that far back from where they are now. In other words, they can still pull six or seven percent and they got four percent i think it was at four in the last general election um when no one had heard of them so they they'd likely to go up a bit from that and if they do then that's still really problematic for the tories and one final thing um obviously it's the budget coming up uh, any predictions either of you about what will be in it what won't be in it mm, the personal allowance will go up again i think the Lib Dems have secured that possibly um as high as ten thousand seven hundred and fifty, and this is a policy which the coalition partners have been quite sort of publicly um, rowing over ownership of. Um, and, and my sympathies are entirely with the Lib, Lib Dems. You found that very good the... clip of Cameron in the leaders debate, didn't you, where he goes, it's a lovely policy, Nick, but we just can't afford it. Exactly. And so I think that if the Tories um, wanted to sort of play that Britain's bankrupt line, and we can't afford tax cuts, and they obviously won some political benefits now, then they can't turn around and claim ownership of a policy that uh, they they were um, opposed to. But it's a funny policy, isn't it? Because it's very easy to explain to people and you know, the idea of taking people out of tax, the lowest paid, but it's not actually that progressive, is it? No, it isn't. And it becomes progressively less progressive as you go on, obviously, because um, it's it's already now at, you know, it's, it's going up to nearly nearly £10,000, um, you know, this April. And so I think there are about 5 million low-paid workers who won't benefit at all from that. Actually, a more progressive um, option would be to raise the national insurance threshold, which remains much lower, or to um, cut VAT, which of course hits hits everyone, particularly the poorest, or to put more money into tax credits for the low-paid. But all of those policy options are viewed as less politically attractive than being able to say, we have cut income tax. Um, and Raf, do you think there's a time for a, a rabbit out of a hat? It's too early for kind of any little giveaways, isn't it? So it's be... quite important, though, for George Osborne, this budget, because it's the, his last opportunity to do something that will be palpable in people's pockets for the next general election. Obviously, he's got another budget after this one, but that will be entirely gestural and symbolic. Um, so to actually deliver something that puts money in people's pockets, whether it's, um, you know, adjusting the the all this, helping all these people who've been caught up in the 40p rate um, and trying to rescue some of them from that, as it were. Um, but there's serious revenue implications from that. And, and ultimately, it's kind of the same dilemma that he's had for a while, which is, on one hand, the big macro political message they want to send is there's no money and we haven't finished a job. So sorry, people, you've just got to knuckle down. Labour would just you know, ramp up the debt and, and send us back to, um, to hell in a handcart. Uh, on the other hand... Fighting a general election without having tried to bribe some of the voters is not orthodox <laughs> politics, and he will be under a lot of pressure to do that. Um, so does he go for, you know, austerity is the key message, uh, everyone get back in your box, we haven't finished a job yet, or does he start to think, right, actually, I need to start um, uh, greasing up some people who might otherwise not vote for me? That's his, that's his challenge. Well, we will come back to this next week. Thank you, George and Rath.
I'm Tom Gatti, Culture Editor of The New Statesman, and I'm joined here with Erica Wagner, who has written a piece in this week's issue of the magazine about Henry Marsh, uh, one of the country's top neurosurgeons. And Erica, you you spent a day with Henry in theatre. Um, so tell us what you saw and what that was like. Well, I spent a whole day with Henry, not just in theatre, but in the hospital too, in the Atkinson Morley Ward of St. George's Hospital in Tooting. Um, so Henry's uh, days when he's operating start pretty early. So I got to Tooting by about 7.30 in the morning to meet him um, because the first thing that happens is there's a meeting with all the neurosurgeons and also all the interns and junior doctors who are attached, if only temporarily, um, to the department. Henry calls these meetings uh, Hill Street Blues meetings because that's where he got the idea from them, from this American cop show. If you haven't seen Hill Street Blues, every episode started with a meeting of the department and the day would go on from there. Um, as far as Henry knows, um, these meetings don't happen in any other hospital. And they are both an opportunity for <clears throat> all the doctors to know what's going to go on during the day, but they're also clearly a very important teaching opportunity for the younger doctors and the interns who are there. So the day's cases will be gone over, questions will be asked, and how best to proceed will be decided. This takes about an hour and a half. Um, and then um, Henry, along with the other doctors, will um, do rounds among the patients that he's going to operate on uh, and speak to them and see how they are and if they're ready and how they're feeling. Um, and then he will prepare to go into theater. When I was there, I saw two operations, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Um, one was uh, on an older gentleman um, who had um, a glioblastoma, a malignant glioblastoma, which is a tumor um, that was actually in the back of his head, the back of his brain, and um, so had taken already taken away quite a lot of his sight. Um, like many of the operations that Henry does, um, this wasn't an operation that was going to cure him um, because this is an incurable tumor, but it might offer him, not necessarily, um, a little more time. Um, but a lot of what happens um, now in this field, Henry has told me, is palliative rather than right. curative. And this operation, this first operation, uh, certainly fell into this category. The second operation I saw, however, was curative. Um, which was an operation on a young woman um, that he'd operated on before. Um, just at the end of the previous week, she had collapsed. And it was discovered that she had a malformation in the arteries and veins um, of her brain, where arterial blood, which is under quite high pressure, was going too soon, essentially, into veins that are not equipped to handle that pressure. So she had bleeding in her brain and a blood clot um, that he had to remove on an emergency basis. Um, it could easily have killed her. Um, and then he had to go back in because he didn't manage to seal off this malformation completely the first time he went in so that this problem would not recur. 
So that was the second operation I saw. Um, and she walked away from that operation um, after a couple of days in the hospital and will be fine. And looking at um, the, the photograph of Henry Marsh that we have in the magazine, the first thing that strikes you is his hands are enormous. I mean, they're huge, kind of thick-fingered hands. And we think of surgeons as performing incredibly delicate sort of fingertip work. How, how does that, how does well, that square? <clears throat> well, it squares in, in uh, lots of different ways. Um, much of the work that Henry does is actually so delicate that it is done through an operating microscope, um, which is a big machine. I suppose it's about six or seven feet tall. Um, it looks kind of like a crane leaning over the patient, peering into its head and into the patient's head. And um, Henry looks into the microscope. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Because he's working on blood vessels that are a few millimeters across. Um, so this is intensely, intensely uh, delicate work. Um, although, interestingly, Henry insists that the work itself is not difficult. That's his expression. Much more difficult, um, he says, are the decisions that you have to make. Whether to operate, when to operate, what are the benefits of operating? What are the risks of operating? And there are, of course, always risks um, in neurosurgery. Um, but Henry's hands, too, um, it's interesting. He's also an extremely skilled woodworker. He keeps bees. So he does other things with his hands beside brain surgery. Mm. And um, this, this idea of the, the decision-making um, is one thing that's unusual about Henry is that he, you know, among among surgeons is that he seems very willing, sort of almost keen to talk about his mistakes. Yes, he is very keen to talk about his mistakes. Um, I think it's worth saying he's moving towards the end of his career. Sure. He's 64. Um, and so he'll retire next year. Um, I think from what Henry has told me about his younger self, his more gung-ho younger self, perhaps that younger self would be less willing to talk about those mistakes. But what he's done in his book, Do No Harm, is show how he has learned from the mistakes he's made. And he's very aware that when he makes a mistake, it is very upsetting for him. But the result can be the real wrecking of someone's life, he gets to walk away and the patient doesn't get to walk away. Um, and so he's highly aware of that and I think has wanted to make the younger surgeons who work with him equally 
aware of that. I think it is a field that does attract, as Henry has said of himself, of course, there are women in neurosurgery too, but a kind of alpha male personality, um, a risk-taking personality. So if you are that kind of person, I think from what Henry has said, you must always be aware of what the possible costs of those risks might be. He, he comes across as, uh, you, you, you talk about an alpha male personality, but what's a, one of the things that's so, so interesting about your profile of Henry is that he's this curious mixture of very proud and self-confident and very humble and self-aware. Yes, he, he is. He, he has that combination, which in my experience um, is very unusual. Mm. Um, I've met plenty of arrogant people who are good at what they do um, and have great confidence in their ability to do what they do. I've met very few people who have an underlying ability to always admit that there might be another side to the question. I mean, it was a very striking thing to me when we were in this Hill Street Blues meeting um, and he was questioning the younger students about the brain scans are shown up on a screen, they're projected on a screen. So everyone is looking at what can be seen and trying to decide what it means. Um, and he was always careful to offer, when he offered his own opinion, he would offer it very confidently and then say, but of course I could be wrong. Or, but of course I'm probably wrong. And I didn't feel that that was something that he was just saying. Hmm. I think it was something that he had learned through experience that often that was true. Of course, you had to make a decision, but it might be the wrong decision. Well, one of the examples that you give in the piece, um, which is clearly an important passage in his book, uh, is an operation that he did as a relatively junior surgeon, removing a benign tumor, so something that might eventually harm this person's quality of life, but wasn't in immediate danger of killing them. And actually, Henry's uh, desire to, to get all of this tumor out of this person ended up with catastrophic consequences for them, didn't it? Yes, that's right. Um, it, was a it was a very large but benign tumor. Um, Henry, I think, had not been a consultant um, for very long. And um, performed this uh, operation, which took 15 hours. Um, he never operates at that length anymore. And he says in the book how, as he was coming to the end of the operation, he could see that there was a little bit of this tumor left, just a tiny bit. And when he had heard very senior, eminent neurosurgeons speak about the heroic operations that they'd done. They never said, but of course I left a tiny bit of the tumor because that seemed safer. They always spoke about getting the whole thing out. So he went for this last bit and then damaged the artery that leads to the brainstem. Um, and your brainstem is of course what runs your whole system. Uh, and that was the end of that the man was left in a permanent vegetative state. Um, the t 
title of that chapter in the book, most of the chapters in the book have names of uh, conditions of the brain, meningioma, glioblastoma. This chapter towards the end is called hubris. And just finally, um, he's quite, I mean, perhaps because, as you said, he is drawing towards the end of his career and perhaps he's earned this, but he's quite outspoken in what he says to you about the NHS and, and the way it is now and the way he sees it going. Yes, he is very outspoken about um, the NHS and what it is becoming. Um, I think all large organizations are public organizations are being increasingly encroached upon by the private sector um, and by systems managers who think that they can make things run more efficiently. Often these managers come in from the outside with little idea of how the organisms, and a hospital is a kind of organism, um, how these organisms really function. Um, so, uh, you know, a good example uh, is that Henry has been working with the same anesthetist, a woman called Judith Dinsmore, for at least a dozen years. Um, and he has a team of people in theatre that he has really had to work quite hard and put a lot of his own personal energy and force into keeping around him because there is much more a culture now of making people, the term is multi-skilled. Um, I think in all fields, not just in doctoring, but even in things like journalism, it's possible to see how making sure that everyone can do a little of everything doesn't necessarily make them better at what they do. You lose specialized skills. Um, Though from the outside, it looks much more efficient. Mm. It looks like you can just take people and move them here and move them there. And when you need people, you always have them available. Um, I think that's not always necessarily the case. Um, I think you have to be, again, in any culture, not just in a hospital, a, a person of quite powerful character to mm. resist that now. Well, uh, Erica's pieces in this week's magazine. Henry Marsh's book is called Do No Harm and is out now. Thanks very much for coming in, Erica. Thank you for asking me. I'm Caroline Crampton, the New Statesman's web editor, and I'm here with Ian Steadman and Sophie McBain to talk about this astonishing story of the plane that's gone missing in the South China Seas. Uh, Ian, you've been following us. Tell yes. us what's happened. Uh, this is Malaysian Airlines flight MH370, which took off from Kuala Lumpur five days ago now. Um, and uh, I mean, it's all over the news. It, it took off and about two hours into the flight to Beijing, it disappeared. Um, which shouldn't happen, really. Disappeared in the yeah. sense that no more contact, no radar. Yeah, it, it was flying along. Um, its transponder, which sends information back to the ground and Malaysian air control, just turned off. Mm. And it never established contact with the Vietnamese um, air flight control people. Um, so the initial worries were there were you know, 239 people on board and, and the worry was it would 
a plane had crashed somehow. Um, it was at cruising altitude at the time, 35,000 feet. So if it had crashed, if it exploded, if it was a terrorist attack, there's all these kind of theories that have been going around. So people have been trying to find it, but the, there's been nothing. Um, there's no wreckage anywhere. There's Just been nothing. a massive international search with you know the Chinese and the Americans, the Vietnamese, the Malaysians, the Thai authorities, um, and no one's found anything so far. And all kinds of wild theories are going on because in this day and age, a uh, plane like that, a Boeing 777, is kind of close to state-of-the-art and has a lot of tools on board, a lot of redundancies built in so that if something goes wrong, other things will mean it keeps flying and it keeps you know sending information mm. and stuff. It, a plane shouldn't just disappear, yet it has. Mm. Now, Sophie, I know you've been working with a, a, an expert on a piece for next week's magazine about this. What are some of the theories that are floating around about this? Well, I think that I think the um, kind of standard theory is that maybe it it broke up in midair just don't really fit because if it broke up in midair or there was a terrorist explosion in midair, then someone would have seen something. The South China Sea isn't that huge and that underpopulated and it would have carried on transmitting mm. for a while um, and there are theories that perhaps the, the cabin pressure suddenly dropped and that caused the pilots to fall unconscious which has happened before but then again you would have been, it would have carried on transmitting so you've got the problem that the, the plane stopped transmitting which is very odd but even if that had happened probably it would have still shown up on radars mm. other if it had exploded someone would have seen it happening so really all the kind of common sense explanations for what sometimes goes wrong with planes just doesn't fit with what happened mm. and the other theory that it was possibly a terrorist attack um someone would have claimed responsibility by now even if they'd they'd managed to switch off all transmitters and land it somewhere surely someone would have said something Which, by now just to be horribly cynical on that last point if you're a terrorist organization doing something like this you don't want to hide the evidence right mm. you, it like you know something that made like the 9-11 attack so powerful was all the images and all the horrible pictures of the wreckage and all that well something like this um so unusual has inevitably bred kind of a few conspiracy theories and stuff and there are um to the latest news today um this might be out of date by the time you listen to this but the latest <laughs> news today is that it's believed that the plane was still flying for up to four hours after it disappeared off radar because rolls royce who make the engines on the plane every they have like an international uh, agreements with airlines that as planes of, with their engines are flying around um, every half an hour they'll get beamed back some like maintenance details and stuff right. to just make sure it's okay and Rolls-Royce was apparently receiving that information for four hours after the plane disappeared it's the only information that we know and that doesn't give you location or anything that just gives you like altitude and speed mm. so if it was flying for another four hours it could be as far away as like Australia so or the middle really of the Indian wide, Ocean yeah widens where um, you have to look so if it's you know that there are these wild theories that maybe it is a terrorist group but they're stealing the plane to use for later mm. or something um, I think the interesting thing with that is that if that was what has happened then why didn't it would have gone into someone else's airspace yeah. and so some other country would have picked it up mm. so unless there's some you know some reason why another country isn't saying that it's entered their airspace it seems really weird mm. there are all kinds of contradictory um, eyewitness reports you meet you get um there been all kinds of uh fishermen coming forward and saying that they were in this part of the ocean off the east coast of of malaysia saying that they actually saw a plane explode but there are people on the west coast of malaysia who said that they actually saw a low-flying plane going over at exactly the right time um there is all the, the malaysian authorities have also given really contradictory times for they've changed the time at which the plane disappeared on radar 
three times so far. And there are people who believe that the Malaysian authorities are worried are worried about a losing face because they've never had a major plane hijacking in Malaysia. So they're trying to like really hush up. The the final point I want to make is that the fact that this is so unusual, this mm. complete disappearance, should reassure us, right? Planes are in the vast majority of cases extremely safe. Yeah. Safest way to travel is the, the, the cliche, but it is per mile travelled. Um, the, 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 you know, planes can largely fly themselves these days. Mm. Pilots are kind of there for redundancy sort of situations and for things like this. You'd so, hope, but maybe the pilot decided to kill himself and flew into the ocean. I mean, there are all kinds of terrible things that could have gone wrong that we just don't know. That's like, And that's actually kind of adds to what's so scary about this is that you have all these um, extra tools and devices that tell you what goes on, which adds to that sensation of this is maybe really safe, mm. which makes it even more unsettling when something goes terribly wrong. When they all stop talking yeah. to us and we're just left completely blacked out. Yep. Well, there you have it, listeners. Who knows? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast and on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil for the underscore orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and we're produced by Philip Moore. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.